Why are so many people in the modern society sick or obese? Is it because of the sedentary lifestyle, overindulgence of processed food, chronic stress, sleep deprivation, being addicted to comfort, or the combination of all those things? In this episode of the Body, Mind and Power podcast, I'm gonna play you chapter 2 of my book, Metabolic Autophagy. You can now get the full audiobook from my website at seamlun.co forward slash metabolic dash autophagy dash audiobook. The link is in the show notes and you can check it out. Chapter 2 is titled The Hedonic Treadmill. Do you want to know what it is? Body, Mind Empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter. Quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Chapter 2. The Hedonic Treadmill. A nation is born stoic and dies epicurean. Will Durant. Modern society is completely bizarre compared to what wild animals experience. Humans have undergone a massive change in our surroundings and habitat. If you're listening to this, then you're probably quite well off, at least in comparison to what our species faced in the past. The world in which we live isn't perfect and devoid of all suffering, but in my opinion, it's still better than ever before. Of course, our dangers may be much more threatening, such as nuclear explosions and global epidemics, but the majority of people are quite fortunate. However, this affluence comes at a cost, especially in wealthier countries. Paradoxically, the richer the country, the more health problems it tends to face. Diseases of the civilization, as they're called, are more predominant amongst upper middle to high income populations. The issue isn't just about being obese or diabetic. The problem is that, in the rise of civilization's comfort and abundance, we're teaching ourselves to lose some of the positive qualities of human nature. Too many suffer from poor self-control, bad dietary habits, horrible biomarkers, and a general hedonic attitude towards life. In an environment where food is more scarce and harder to come by, the situation would be slightly different. People either have to expend a lot more energy to get their calories, or they simply wouldn't be able to consume them excessively. That's definitely not the only contributing factor to why richer societies tend to suffer from diseases, but the correlation is easy to see. Will Durant, a famous 20th century historian, said, A nation is born stoic and dies epicurean. Stoicism is a branch of Hellenistic philosophy that emphasizes personal ethics, logic and virtuous living, whereas Epicureanism places pleasure as the greatest good. When you look at history, then it's so true. Great civilizations of the past, such as the ancient Greece, Rome, Mesopotamia, the French monarchy of Louis XIV, all fell into the trap of excess glamour and comfort. As the people became wealthier, they became softer and thus more vulnerable to foreign invaders or upheavals. They became the victims of their own hedonic downfall. As we know, the lessons of history tend to repeat themselves, and human nature is very stubborn and resistant to change. That's why it's so important to create these situations of deliberate discomfort and voluntary challenges that elicit a hormetic response. Otherwise, you'd predispose yourself to not only metabolic disorders, but you'd be less capable to face unpredictable events in the future. In fact, it can be said that 
Facing adversity, overcoming obstacles and experiencing suffering is an essential component to having a meaningful human experience. I'm not saying that we should fabricate unnecessary pain in our lives. Instead, those uncomfortable and adverse situations help us to put things into perspective. They also contribute to our longevity through hormesis. Think of it as the dour state in larvae who exponentially extend their lifespan just because of being put under environmental pressures. I know the resemblance isn't easy to accept, but that's the general principle of stress adaptation. It's funny to be talking about such things in the first chapters of a nutrition book, but I think it's very important. The more exposure you get to any stimuli, the more resistant you become towards it. Let's take insulin resistance as an example. Your blood sugar gets elevated. Then the pancreas releases insulin to bring it back down. Normally, insulin would unlock the cells to shuttle that glucose into glycogen stores. But after a while, the pancreas gets taxed. Then the pancreas can't keep up with pumping out more and more insulin and your blood sugar remains elevated for too long. You become insulin resistant not being able to produce enough insulin to metabolize carbohydrates properly. Insulin resistance is one of the main driving forces of obesity and metabolic disorders in the Western diet. We'll be talking about it a lot more in chapter 11. In the example of caffeine, you start off by being satisfied with a single cup. Then you build up your tolerance and you need more and more to feel the same effect. This is called hedonic adaptation, also known as the hedonic treadmill. It points out how we adapt to a stable level of happiness despite the ups and downs of positive gains or negative losses in our life. Despite the fortunate or disastrous events that we may encounter, eventually we'll reach the homeostatic level of happiness we were at previously. You win a lottery and you're on cloud nine. New house, nice cars, fancy clothes, traveling the world and all that fun stuff. Then, after a few months, you adapt to this new lifestyle and it becomes normal. You're back at baseline. You break up with someone and feel heartbroken. After a while, you get over it and you're back in the game. You lost your job and had to cut down on your expenses. At first, it's uncomfortable and displeasing, but soon you'll get used to it. Instead of eating $200 dinners every night, you're satisfied with eating less glamorously. You start smoking only one cigar a day, but over the course of a year, you've built up to an entire pack to get the same effect. Why is this so anyway? Why do people eat food past satiety until indulgence and get addicted to these simple pleasures that aren't even meaningful in the grand scheme of things? The reason for that has to do with our primal origins again. You see, the change in our environment from scarcity to abundance has happened too quickly. We may live in the modern world, but our body thinks it's still in the ancestral landscape. Because of this evolutionary time lag, our brain is always trying to motivate us to consume the most evolutionarily valuable nutrients, salt, sugar and fat. Foods with a combination of carbohydrates and fats have the highest calorie density and enable our body to store energy for the dark times to come. Unfortunately, those times are happening less and less often, and these unnatural food combinations that drive us to eat more are available all the time. In nature, 
Fat is generally available in winter, when we had to eat animals to survive, while sugar and starch were available in summer and autumn. There was no time where we had the combination of fat plus carbs available to us in natural whole food, but this is the signature of junk food that drives excessive eating. The deadly combination of salt, sugar and fat is like a drug as it stimulates our taste buds in an addictive way and it lights up the reward mechanisms in the brain. Michael Moss's book Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us talks about how fast food companies have deciphered this secret code that makes us crave more food. It's called the bliss point. The specific amount of those three ingredients which optimizes palatability. There's not too much, nor too little, but just enough. By themselves, they're not inherently bad, but when together they cause conflicting metabolic and hormonal effects within the body that leads to diabetes and obesity. The reason why some people can't get enough enjoyment from healthy food is that their bliss point is too high. Refined carbohydrates, sweets, pastries and pizzas have overstimulated their taste buds. They simply can't even feel the taste of anything less than that. To keep up with their primal urges, they want to increase their sensations even further. Instead of being satisfied, they keep craving for more and more. Another thing that causes binge eating is leptin resistance. It's the satiety hormone that regulates the feeling of hunger. Leptin's role is to signal the brain that there's a dire need for calories. Once we get full, it sends another message saying that we've had enough. However, if we're leptin resistant, then the lines of communication will be cut short and our mind will never get the information that we've received enough food. In this case, the body is satisfied, but the brain is still starving and keeps on craving for more stuff. Leptin resistance is caused mostly by emotional binge eating. Usually, it goes hand in hand with insulin resistance, as it's created by the consumption of simple carbohydrates and sugar with a lot of fat at the same time. These combinations of foods affect the mental processes of people and are the most common cause of obesity and diabetes. Living organisms are hardwired towards preserving energy to guarantee survival and avoid pain which gets regulated by the homeostatic balance of the body. Core temperature, blood pressure, daily caloric expenditure and hormetic conditioning are all linked to this. Basically, hedonic adaptation is about you getting comfortable with a particular stimulus and it becomes your default state. You reach a new homeostasis. That can be part of the reason why richer countries tend to overindulge They've simply gotten used to the pleasure and comforting aspects of food. As a conscious human being who seeks to optimize their health and overall life, you should want to pay close attention to where your hedonic homeostasis is. We're always moving up and down the hedonic ladder with some activities making us less comfortable, whereas others more so. The level we dwell on the most becomes our default state the place where we feel the best and most satisfied. If your baseline for feeling pleased and joyous about food is way up in the clouds, needing six-course gourmet dinners or even highly stimulating fast food that hijacks your taste perception, then you need to be eating more of those things to feel satisfied. On the flip side, 
If you were to be habituated yourself with healthier but slightly blander meals, you'd get the same satisfaction and blissfulness. The difference is that you're not overindulging on empty calories or teaching yourself to like only very rich foods. Subjectively, the feelings are the same, but in terms of the final outcome and calories, it's a completely different story. Obesity and metabolic diseases are primarily the outcomes of physiological ailments in the body as well as psychological hedonic adaptation to the dopamine rush of highly stimulating foods that make the person follow certain bad lifestyle practices. A rational person wouldn't consciously harm itself with a diet they know is bad for them in the long run. It's just that many people are very much controlled by their emotions, feelings, sensations and thoughts which unfortunately can be easily manipulated. Now, the point of all this isn't that all pleasure and comfort should be avoided. Of course, life is to be enjoyed, but what hedonic adaptations shows us is that the feeling of joy and happiness depend on our subjective homeostasis, just our perceptions and conditioning. The question you'd want to ask yourself is, what emotions, pleasures, discomforts, foods, stimuli are you exposed to most often? All addictions are not as much caused by any particular stimulus, but more so by our attachment to it. You've habituated yourself to doing something, like smoking a pack a day, having a drink in the evening, or putting extra cheese on your food. Your happiness isn't linked to how high your homeostasis is in particular, but in your adaptation to the stability and comfort you experience, which means you can be as happy as you are right now if you were to smoke only a single cigar a day or eating just plain broccoli. You just have bad habits. The key to overcoming any addiction is to detach yourself from the thing that you're addicted to. You have to reduce your exposure to the stimulus. What I advise you to do is to abstain from it completely. Just start fasting. Intermittent fasting resets your taste buds and makes healthy food taste amazing. Junk food will actually become too stimulating. Avoiding caffeine for a certain period of time will lower your tolerance to it. You'll get more energy from less coffee when you do enjoy a cup. Not consuming social media and entertainment for a while will give your brain a break from being constantly stimulated and triggered. This will help you to become more mindful and focused in life. Sleeping on the floor or outside every once in a while reminds you how fortunate you really are for having even just a roof over your head. It can also condition you to hold a better posture. If you understand this concept, then you can see that it's a massive hack for happiness. You'll become happier with less. However, we shouldn't go extreme with it, i.e. full monk mode in a cave with no clothes or material possessions. We can still experience the pleasures of life and have a greater meaning at the same time. The key is to not make the mistake of scaling up our homeostasis and never coming down from it. We should experience the highs as well as the lows so that we could appreciate the things we already have. Do buy yourself nice things, but get accustomed to being happy without them. This is what's taught in Stoicism as well. One of the more renowned writers of this philosophy, Seneca, had an exercise where he voluntarily practiced poverty. He said, 
Set aside a certain number of days, during which you shall be content with the scantiest and cheapest fare, with coarse and rough dress, saying to yourself the while, Is this the condition that I feared? Seneca was the richest banker in Rome, yet he deliberately put himself through difficult situations, discomfort and pain. This not only made him resistant against turmoil, but also allowed him to calibrate his hedonic homeostasis as he wished. His happiness wasn't dependent on anything external because he found it within himself. Hedonic adaptation can be experienced in the pursuit of longevity and performance as well. The idea that you're going to die is both a catalyst for living out your true potential as a human being and a source of existential discomfort at the same time. If you were to live forever, then you'll come across the dichotomy of having all the time in the world to do anything you want, thus getting nowhere and having so much time that you'll be able to do everything. It's a paradoxical situation, the outcome of which depends on your hedonic homeostasis and mindset. Whatever the case may be, the process of living, fulfilling your desires, pursuing your goals and dying itself are wherein you'll find the most happiness. You just have to make sure that it does give you some sort of a greater sense of meaning. Otherwise, you'll end up with immortal suffering and apathy. This is still a book about diet and nutrition, but I want you to realize how big of a role your mindset and psychology plays in all of this. How healthy you are and how long you're gonna live are very much dependent upon your daily habits, the small decisions and activities you do all the time. They might not seem that significant in the short term, but they're actually the pillar stones of your longevity in the long run. Think about it. If you're the kind of person who is falling off the rails with their diet or skipping workouts on a regular basis, then it's going to add up. After a while, you may gain 10 to 20 pounds of unnecessary extra weight just out of habit. You don't have to even notice that you're doing something wrong. It's just the culmination of certain things that you simply didn't pay enough attention to. That extra serving of cheese, sporadic snacking, taking the elevator more often and dropping the ball many times will scale up the hedonic ladder. Lao Tzu, one of the most renowned philosophers of ancient China and the founder of Taoist philosophy, has a quote, Deal with the big while it is still small. The health of your body is the biggest thing in your life because it literally anchors your psychosomatic experience of the world. That's why you shouldn't take it for granted. Furthermore, your life expectancy and longevity are another thing that you can't expect to focus on only when you're about to die. It'll be too late by then. Hell, it was probably too late several decades ago. If you're planning on living a healthier life that's long, full of vigor, bliss and happiness, then you have to be actively working at it all the time. You may be already eating right, exercising and sleeping properly. However, by picking up this book, you've now embarked on a much more thorough and conscientious routine of health optimization that will not only improve longevity, but increases performance in everything you do as well. In the context of diet and nutrition, then one of the most efficient ways of avoiding metabolic disease as well as increased life expectancy is intermittent fasting. That's the main practice of the metabolic autophagy protocol, which is what we'll talk about next. Why intermittent fasting? 
Although currently living in a modern world, our bodies still think we're in the ancestral savanna with lions and stuff. This reflects in the way we metabolize food, experience stress, adapt to physical conditions, and also how our psychology functions. You see, the eating patterns of our hunter-gatherer ancestors were highly unpredictable, quite frankly, completely random. Sometimes they had a whole lot, and at others, nothing at all. Whatever the case, they were always in between fasting and feasting. They did both intermittently. This cycle wasn't deliberate, but created by the scarcity of food in their environment. Intermittent fasting, or IF, not only has incredible health benefits that are linked to increased longevity, but also has psychological effects that help to escape the hedonic treadmill. In a world of unlimited empty calories and too much stimulation, the easier thing to do is to just say no. This is such a huge life hack that once you've tried it out, you wish you started sooner. I've been practicing IF since high school practically every day, and it's one of the best decisions I've made in regards to nutrition. You might ask, who should be crazy enough to do this? It doesn't make any sense. This is what decades worth of brainwashing and misleading diet advice may do to unwary minds. It's quite paradoxical that the majority of people in the world go to bed while starving every single night, but at the same time, almost everyone in Western society is obsessively obese. The Pareto Principle applies here perfectly. He was an Italian economist, and in his 1896 paper, he showed that, in most cases, about 80% of the effects come from 20% of the causes. 80% of the wealth belongs to 20% of the people, 80% of car accidents happen to 20% of the drivers, 80% of the food is consumed and stored as fat in 20% of the world's population, etc. Mainly, it's used in economics, but this 80-20 rule, or the law of the vital few, is evident in the distribution of calories and obesity as well. Our civilization has reached a point where we don't have to worry about our most primary needs as much and can now spend more time on other activities that develop us further as a species. There's nothing wrong with that. In a perfect world, no animal would have to kill another one and everyone would always be fed and satisfied. However, we don't live in such a place yet, at least for the time being. You have to get your head around fasting. In contemporary nutrition advice, it's the F word, the forbidden fruit. Don't skip a meal or else. Or else what? IF is such a natural way of eating, and it's even more suitable for a modern environment where most people could use some positive restriction. So, how does it work? Intermittent fasting, or IF, is a way of eating, or not eating, where the food consumed is restricted to a certain time frame. This means that no calories whatsoever get put into the body in any shape or form. In a way, it's simply timing when you eat. The two governing states of metabolism are fed and fasted, anabolism and catabolism. The former is when we're using the macronutrients eaten that have been digested and are now circulating the bloodstream. The latter happens when all that fuel has run out and our gas tank is empty, so to say. It happens after several hours of not eating. 
Anabolism also refers to building up, whereas catabolism entails breaking down. Both of them can contribute to each other's processes. You need to catabolically dissolve the food you've eaten to become anabolic, etc. They're the different sides of the same coin. How does the body produce energy while fasting? The body's default fuel source is glucose, which exogenously or externally comes in the form of sugar and carbohydrates and is stored endogenously or internally as glycogen. The liver can deposit 100 to 150 grams of glycogen and muscles about 300 to 500 grams. They're used for backup. Liver glycogen stores will be depleted already within the first 18 to 24 hours of not eating almost overnight. This decreases blood sugar and insulin levels significantly, as there are no exogenous nutrients to be found. Insulin is a hormone released by the pancreas in response to rising blood sugar, which happens after the consumption of food. Its role is to unlock the receptors in our cells to shuttle the incoming nutrients into our muscles, or when they're already full, into our adipose tissue or body fat. The counterpart to insulin is glucagon and also gets produced by the pancreas. It gets released when the concentration of glucose in the bloodstream gets too low. The liver then starts to convert stored glycogen into glucose. As fasting continues, the liver starts to produce ketone bodies, which are derived from our own fat cells. Lipolysis, or the breakdown of stored triglycerides in the adipose tissue, and ketogenesis increase significantly due to fat acid mobilization and oxidation. Ketosis can occur already after two to three days of fasting. Triglycerides, which are molecules of stored body fat, are broken down into glycerol, which is used for gluconeogenesis or the creation of new glucose and three fatty acid chains. Fatty acids can be used for energy by most of the tissues in the body, but not the brain. They need to be converted into ketone bodies first. Ketosis is a metabolic state in which fat is the primary fuel source instead of glucose and can be achieved either through fasting or by following a ketogenic diet. Fasting induces ketosis very rapidly and puts the body into its more efficient metabolic state. The more keto-adapted you become, the more ketones you'll successfully utilize. At first, the brain and muscles are quite glucose-dependent, but eventually, they do start to prefer fat for fuel. Ketone bodies may rise up to 70-fold during prolonged fasts. After several days of fasting, approximately 75% of the energy used by the brain is provided by ketones. This also allows other species, such as king penguins, to survive for 5 months without any food. Protein catabolism decreases significantly as fat stores are mobilized and the use of ketones increases. Muscle glycogen gets used even less and the majority of our energy demands will be derived from the adipose tissue. This can be accomplished by following a well-formulated ketogenic diet as well, which actually mimics the physiology of fasting almost entirely. The Krebs cycle is a sequence of reactions taking place in our mitochondria that generate energy during aerobic restoration, a fancy way of saying breathing normally. When glucose enters this metabolic furnace, it goes through glycolysis, which creates the molecule pyruvate. In the case of fatty acids, 
the outcome is a ketone body called acetoacetate, which then gets converted further into beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetone. The difference between pyruvate and ketone bodies is that the latter can create 25% more energy. On top of that, the byproducts of glycolysis are advanced glycation end products or AGEs, which promote inflammation and oxidative stress by binding a protein or lipid molecule with sugar. They also speed up aging and can cause diabetes. Fasting versus caloric restriction versus starvation. An important notion is to distinguish fasting from starvation. One is voluntary, deliberate, and intentional, but the other is involuntary and forced upon. It's like the difference between suicide and dying of old age. Abstention from food is the art of manipulating our metabolic system and can be done for many reasons. Malpractice might look like the person is starving, but if done correctly, it's very healthy and good for you. You just have to know how to balance it with sufficient anabolism and get enough essential nutrients. This book teaches you how to do that. Starvation is a severe deficiency in energy intake. The body doesn't have access to essential nutrients and is slowly wasting away by cannibalizing its vital organs. It's a gradual process of degradation that's often characterized by the skinny fat look or the bloated stomach, which is caused by insufficient protein even in the presence of sufficient caloric intake. Caloric restriction reduces calorie intake without causing malnutrition or starvation. You're simply consuming fewer calories needed to maintain your body's current energy demands. This will make you burn your stored fat and also lowers the body's overall metabolic rate, down-regulated reproductive hormones, thyroid functioning, and promotes gluconeogenesis. The difference between caloric restriction and starvation is that when calorically restricted, your body still gets access to the energy it needs to maintain its daily energy demands. It's just that those energy demands have adapted to be lower and more efficient in terms of energy gained per calorie. Fasting is a state of metabolic suspension in which you are not consuming any calories. Despite that, your body is still nourished and gets the energy it needs. This happens by shifting into ketosis, in which you'll be burning your body fat almost exclusively. Fasting doesn't equal starvation because your body is in a distinct metabolic state. Being fasted and fed is quite binary. Even small amounts of food will shift you into a fed condition. Fasting isn't entirely the same as caloric restriction either because you can be consuming fewer calories but still not enter into a fasted state. During World War II, they conducted a study called the Minnesota Starvation Experiment on a group of lean men who reduced their calories by 45% for 6 months. Their diet consisted of primarily carbohydrates, which comprised 77% of total calories and had very little protein to mimic starvation conditions. After the experiment, the men showed a 21% reduction in strength, decline in energy and vitality. One of them started having dreams about cannibalism even. This is quite a critical point. They ate very little protein and very little essential nutrients, which promotes low satiety and catabolism of muscle. Prioritizing nutrient density and adequate protein makes a reduced caloric intake more tolerable. 
they ate potatoes, cabbage, macaroni, whole wheat bread, while still maintaining very active lifestyles. The men in the Minnesota experiment were put under severe caloric restriction that resulted in starvation-like symptoms. Even though they were very malnourished, they weren't fasting because of still eating a significant amount of carbohydrates that kicked them out of ketosis. Daily caloric restriction decreases metabolism, so it's easy to presume that this would be magnified as food intake drops to zero. However, this is wrong. Once your food intake stops completely, you start fast, the body shifts into using stored fat for fuel, which is ketosis. The hormonal adaptations of fasting will not occur by only lowering your caloric intake. In the case of being fasted, your physiology is under completely different conditions, which is unachievable by regular eating. Malnourishment happens when there is not enough nutrition to be found, i.e. you go on a weight loss diet and restrict calories. While fasting, the organism is almost never fully deprived of essential nutrients unless you lose all of your body fat. These fuel sources are mobilized from internal resources. To prevent malnourishment and starvation while restricting calories, you want to establish ketosis and autophagy as soon as possible. Even consuming small amounts of food will put you into a fed state. It doesn't matter whether you eat 200 calories or 1000 calories, you'll still be shifted out of a fasted state. That's why intermittent fasting is a lot better than caloric restriction. If you're feeding yourself, but in inadequate amounts, then your body will most definitely perceive it as scarcity. This will decrease your metabolic rate and creates a new set point at which you can lose weight that's lower than previously. You'll be causing more damage than good. If you do it the wrong way, you'll end up like someone from the concentration camps. Fasting isn't a mechanism of starvation because your metabolism will be altered and suspended. This shift won't occur entirely if you continue consuming food, even when you've reduced your calories to a bare minimum. It's actually a lot healthier way of losing weight, as you'll be burning only fat, not muscle. When on a restrictive diet, you'll never make the leap, and to keep your energy demands at a balance, you begin to cannibalize your own tissue. When in a fasted state, this can be completely circumvented. Instead, Fasting is one of the best ways of escaping the hedonic treadmill and becoming immune to the ebbs and flows of nutrition. Not only will it improve your overall health, but makes the relationship with food better. In the next chapter, we'll talk about what the benefits are. Alright, that's it for this episode. You can get the full audiobook from my website seamlun.co forward slash metabolic dash autophagy dash audiobook. The link is in the show notes. But other than that, thanks for listening, stay tuned for the next episode, stay empowered.